Today's guest on Fistful of Chords is Mickey Gallagher, long-time collaborator with the late Ian Jury, one of this country's finest songwriters. Mickey's been keyboard player with the Blockhead since 1977 and continues to tour and record with them. He also tours with The Animals and has played with numerous other bands including The Clash in a career spanning more than half a century. I caught up with him recently via Zoom. Please remember this was recorded under lockdown conditions. So, yeah, Mickey, let's start off. What are you up to during lockdown? How are you coping with it? <laughs> uh, well, it's been, it's been, it was a necessary break, actually. I mean, we're just talking among ourselves, and uh, uh, some of us have got more than one job. You know, we work with different bands. So, you know, social gathering was our thing. It was just relentless, and it wasn't until it stopped, you know, I realised how relentless it had been. And uh, it, it, it was a welcome break. But now, after a couple of months, I think we're starting to itch and start going, well, we'd like to play again. As I say, I think we're all enjoying it. You, you're asking, you know, pensioners to stay at home. We're happy to stay at home. We only go out when we work. You know, that's the only time we ever go out. <laughs> and so have you been in touch much with the other blockheads? How are you all communicating? Yeah, on the old WhatsApp and you know, phone, FaceTime. Uh, yeah, I spoke to Norman the other day and oh, I've got a shock. He's actually gardening. I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it. It's um, bizarre. <laughs> so, Mickey, when you met Ian and Chaz Jankel, you'd just been in Ronan O'Reilly's strange concept band, Loving Awareness, with Johnny, Norman and Charles. You'd released an album with a crazy double press conference in New York and Amsterdam. But the release was pulled, wasn't it? Our record company was shattered at the um, at the scam. Called us all in, you know, dragged us across the coals. Wouldn't release the album, so we came back deflated. But we came back to a country that all of a sudden punk had broken, and this whole tide of culture had changed overnight. And uh, of course, our loving awareness. Um, approached everything it was all getting a bit too much anyway i think um was out the window and there's this new energy had hit so we all okay we're musicians let's fold the band well when it all we went out and did sessions and uh norman and charlie got a lot of sessions because they were a tight rhythm session we've been playing together for four years um and uh people wanted a nice tight rhythm section and of course one of the people who came along and asked for it was the enduri and Charles, who had written uh, 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 New Boots and Panties, which is extensively an uh, um, um, Enduri solo album. Uh, so Charlie and Norman got dragged into those sessions, did the sessions, worked out really well, played some of the songs to, to John and I, and we went, wow, you know, this is impressive stuff. And then the next thing came down the line was that Ian wanted to go on the road. He released his record, it was getting a bit of recognition wanted to go on the road and there was a stiff tour being planned and of course he needed a band so Charlie and Norman said well you've all we're already in a band you know we've got a guitarist and a, a and a keyboard player who could augment what you've got so we all got together and rehearsed for the uh, stiff tour and it worked out f fabulous you know we just blended really well and it was on that tour that we actually got the name Blockheads we 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 were introduced by Cosmo Vinyl every night, a different name every night, uh, 
to feed his wives or, you know, <laughs> anything, just rubbish. And then one night he went on and he said, uh, of course, Blockheads is this tune from the album, and, and he said, he, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ian Dury and the Blockheads. And Norman went in the wings, he went, what? that's a good name, we should have that. And it sort of just stuck that we came that on the tour. And of course, after the tour, we thought, well, that's it, you know, we've done the tour. And of course, because it was successful, Ian wanted to go further. And so and then after that, you had the problem of recording the difficult second album, and you were all involved in the writing process suddenly and, and moved up to this country house in Rolden. Ian sort of stepped up his, um, his game and rented this house, big house down in this, uh, Sussex somewhere, or Kent, and, um, and invited us all down to, to, to do some writing. So we'd, we'd, we'd all go down separately, then we'd go down all together. And I remember one time being down there all together as a band, and he had various rooms, and he tracked tr the whole operation like, like a college, you know, like like he went to art school, so there'd be various studios where people would go in and work on projects, and the the um, the teacher or the the um, professor, whatever, would walk around from studio to studio checking on people's work. That's how he put us out. You know, had a piano in a room where I was. Johnny had to sit with the guitar. There's another piano in another room with somebody, and you know, everybody had a, a lyric. And we'd go and sit in the room and work on that. And, and Ian would walk around each room, <laughs> checking on the progress and, you know, putting his, his you know, his uh, opinions in. Um, I found that bizarre. It wasn't natural. But, you know, it was his way of working. He felt in control. And he had a mission. He had an album to do. So I jumped ahead a little bit. I went, so before you've gone to the second album, um, you've had a couple of two hit singles by then, haven't you? You had What a Waste and Rhythm Stick. What a Waste came first, obviously, that got I think number five. Um, and that was a, an interesting combination because that was a song that, 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 that Ian gave to me in demo form, and it was, um, it was just sort of one hand piano playing the vocal line, which isn't that, that adventurous, <laughs> the vocal line, um, the melody wise, but basically, it was playing that. And uh, I took it and uh, corded it up a bit and then took it to the band and all those riffs that came in, like the intro riff and the solos and the, the whole arrangement was all done by the band, basically, in the studio. So I said, it was a magnificent thing at the end of the day. And it was a, it was a total, um, you know, uh, collaboration with everyone for that song. It didn't turn out that in the end, you know, legally, but uh, that's that's how it was. And we, we all felt for about six years until we realised, hang on, none of us got a credit on that. We, uh, funnily enough, we're on, the, we're on the, the record where you have it in brackets, we have all the names, right? But that's the only place on the deal, it's not that at all. <laughs> and what about Rhythm Stick? What was that like to... Because that was quite a long process of of writing, I think. Well, I think Ian, Ian and Chaz obviously had it brewing for a while. They tended to do this, and then they'd bring it out to the band and start to augment it. And that, that happened in Rolvenden, I remember, um, you know, piecing that together. Um, 
it wasn't a uh, oh, difficult process. The recording of it was intense because we did about 26 takes of it and used the second one. <laughs> you know, it's one of those days you just keep going for it. You just not getting any better. <laughs> and you go, hang on, let's go. That's great. <laughs> second one we did. So when you had you had that big number one hit, you had What A Waste being in the top ten, did you think that you were going to you know, be top of the charts for a long period of time? Uh, not really, no. I mean, it was just, we knew there was something special about it right from the Stiff tour. We knew it was going to go somewhere. Um, what happened after that, I don't know, because, you know, we all felt we were musicians and we knew we were riding on a wave of, of um, political, you know, um, change which is punk and, you know, the way of expressing it and it was coming out in music. We knew that. All those things have a limited life, so we didn't know how long that was going to be, staying. We were musicians, we weren't punks. You know, we adapted what we did to the genre um, because we had a singer who, who expressed himself like that. You see, you know, had a, a three-album deal, and, of course, New Boots and Panties was the first one, and Do It Yourself was the second one. Um, the um, he handed over the the control of Do It Yourself to Chaz. The management company thought it was too muso. We all enjoyed it, I suppose. It was a very strange operation in that we were just called in to do our bits, and then so it, it didn't feel the same camaraderie, if you want, of uh, what waste and the stuff that we were doing right up to that point. It suddenly became very studio orientated, with uh, the engineer and Chaz in there twenty four seven, and just calling us in for days to do, do our bits. So it's a very structured, structured album. I think you can hear that. We all got a, a nominal song, at least one on the album. I think mine was "This Is What We Find." I was going to ask you about "This Is What You Find." Of course, that some people would say that's the the best song on the album, and yet it's. Um, ruined as potential for a single because Ian reads that line of swearing all the way through then. How did you feel about that? Um, well, I didn't think too much about it at the time, but, uh, you know, I was very naive and you think, oh, I've written a song, it's great, you know, and there's this quirky line in it, blah, blah, blah. And then it dawns on you, hang on, you're not going to get any record, play, any radio play for that. And But I didn't feel that I, I could say anything. He was, the, he was writing the lyric. You know, um, and it wasn't until years later, and I did a few songs with him where he had swear words in it, and I go, oh, you know, there you go. That stopped that that lifespan <laughs> is, you know, nipped in the bud right there on that line. And it wasn't until years later, and I was, I was talking to Charles, and I went, he never swears on your song. And he went, yeah, ask him not to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? You just got to ask him. <laughs> so you know it was it was like that i just never thought thought to do it so um how would you compare the songwriting well the songs on do it yourself to new boots i think we're more contrived on do it yourself the arrangements were more contrived they were adventurous so, you know charles was given his his reign and um and he went for it he did a very good job you know um but it wasn't it wasn't the follow-on from New Boots and Panties that people expected. There's one thing I've missed out, which I meant to ask you, which we'll quick, briefly come back to, 
which was reasons to be cheerful. Um, there's obviously a very good story about the, the writing of that song in Italy. Yes, we yeah we were on tour in Italy. We had a deal with Areccia, RCA, and we were doing this major tour in Italy, and uh, we played um, somewhere in the middle of Italy. We turned up to do this gig in the coach, and our crew. It was a massive tour, seventy-two day tour we had, and we had like um, two coaches, one for the crew, one for the band, and various hangers-on, and we had two articulated lorries one with the, 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 the equipment and one with the lighting carried our own like a huge operation going through Europe you know and we get to this place and uh, we turned up and the crew were there and there's just this fuss going on and one of our crew had got a, an electric shock he'd been setting up the gear and of course he touched the uh, part of the rigging and touch equipment at the same time. Boom, you had this current going. And another roadie had to sussed what was happening, ran and, you know, just jumped up and did a drop kick, kicked him off the, and, and saved his life. Took him to hospital. He had this scar right across from one arm to the other, right across his chest. They burned this electricity thing. So, of course, Ian's got a metal leg, <laughs> you know, and a microphone with polio. So we all went, this is far too dodgy so we're gonna to have to pull the gig we can't take the risk and the italian crew there wouldn't let us start taking the gear down so we had this minder with us called fred Rowe, an old korean war vet <laughs> uh, and he just stood in front of them and said all right come on who wants it you know and there were two there was about <laughs> 10 of them and there's one of him you know and he just stood there said first one come on come on you know and behind them, the crew were taking the gear down, right? So they took all the, and they're all shouting and screaming, to, and they blocked the part, the, 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 the car park with their cars, saying we, so we wouldn't get out. And we got in the couch and we drove over the grass verge, and we could hear them chanting behind us, Bologna, 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 which was the next gig. And we thought, bollocks to that, we're not going to Bologna, let's go to Rome, you know, let's go to Rome. So we turned around, we went back to Rome, we told the record company that we were, we were ditching the tour. And, uh, but we had a single to record, and we'll go in the studio in Rome and do it, and that was, um, you know, reasons to be cheerful. So after this period, then, then Chaz quits and Wilco comes in. Uh, that was a sort of a difficult change, I presume. Yeah, style. I didn't think we needed it, but, I mean, Wilco, a lovely lad, uh, but he's got his own way of playing, a very, very noticeable way of playing. And uh, it was strange to sort of put that in the blockers. It sort of worked. You know, we made it work. And uh, wonderful playing that he does sometimes, but it's, it's not, you know, chunking away through in between his... Yeah, which is a very sort of <laughs> delicate arrangement, and you got this and all, all the way through it. Um, it was a different approach, and I think Ian felt that he'd lost Chaz. We were all sort of new in terms of working relationships. He 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 worked with us on one one or two things. He needed distraction. Ian always needed like a distraction in order to get things happening and in a way maybe Wilco was that he brought in to sort of distract everybody so that we were all 
concerned about working with Wilco and so he could do or have time to, to construct how he was going to go forward. Because the momentum was there, we were doing gigs. Obviously, we all wanted to do gigs. And um, I think losing Chaz was a big thing for Ian. Uh, yes. And um, he was compensating by sticking somebody else in the band. Uh, he did the same with me later on with the music students because he, um, he sort of broke the blockheads up and he formed this other band called the music students. Then he came and got me as somebody from the past that he could link up with, give a distraction, if you want, to be in the band. So you had that con continu continuity. And uh, he used to do that with Davey, bring Davey in when he felt alone. <laughs> it's funny, Davey and him never got on particularly well. They did. It was like a love-hate relationship, you know. They'd uh, sing each other's praises and then call each other, you know, the worst things. And an and act towards each other. They had a long relationship back to art school. So, um, you know, and Ian was a front front man and Davy was a side man. That's basically it. But the ego was, you know, Davy always wanted to try and outdo Ian and Ian was like, oh, come on, try and take it from me on stage. But it all worked because it was the energy of the stage and it worked on stage. It didn't work off stage. <laughs> and so after Wilco joins, the, the first song you do together, you co-wrote it, Why I Want to Be Straight, which is probably classified as Ian's last hit. Um, tell me about the writing of that song. Simplest song I ever wrote. <laughs> I was three chords, you know, um, and it worked with the lyric. Basically, uh, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're writing a song, you're led by the lyric. Uh, Ian used to like it that way. I mean, the, the odd songs that, he, that he, he did where the lyric didn't lead it, like in Betweenies, for instance, you had to really learn that because... Um, it was an arrangement. It was very sophisticated. Plus, he, he wasn't singing on the beat. He was singing off the beat. It was boom, in boom, whereas all everything else, you know, it was all on the beat. So this was very strange for Ian to do something like that. And a great achievement because it wasn't his natural place to be sat. And so the next album was Laughter, which was not an easy process. No. <laughs> so tell me a bit about that. Part for, for a start, I think you guys had got your own song or music together to make a record yourself, and then Ian came in and asked you to do Laughter. And, yeah, we'd all been doing different things. I think I'd gone off with The Clash to do yeah. various stuff in America. I was, uh, um, the, the Clash was sent to America by... They, they were in a situation with their record company or their management. They were in between management and Ian's management company, Blackhill, were looking after them at that time. And that's how I got linked in with them. Uh, Session-wise, they need keyboards, so Blackhill managed us, um, or managed Ian. Uh, so I got, I, I got involved with that and went off to America with them. And uh, knowing that... I mean, Ian was went off for a holiday for a year. <laughs> He'd had the hit, hit me with his rhythm stick and, um, and uh, he was reaping the benefits of that. Chaz had gone off to America and got married or something. Uh, uh, Ian 
was away for a year. He just went away for a year. Um, so doing something with the Clash, I had to do something like that. You know, I wasn't prepared to. I just done a seventy-two day tour with Ian. I wasn't. I didn't like the idea of going on a busman's holiday with the band. <laughs> a lot of them did, you know. But I just said, oh, I'll do something else. And I'd done these sessions with the Clash, and they were in America, and they rang up and said, oh, I hear Ian's not working. And said, would you like to come on tour? Well, yeah, I'll do that. If I can bring my family, because they needed a holiday as well. Took my wife and kids, and we, off we went, rode on a tour bus from America, more than many tours I did with them in the, in the next year. And weren't you on some of the songs on, on London Calling, as well as Sandinista? Uh, yeah, London Calling was the first... Um, uh, the first album I did with them as a session player, you know, went up and did keyboards on that. Yeah, and on the strength of that, that's when they asked me, they realised we blockers were off the road, so would I come on tour with them? Um, but that was a strange situation because I, 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 I'd only just got to know, I didn't know them that well, you know. Um, I didn't know the internal politics. And apparently they weren't talking <laughs> to each other. And uh, I remember them asking me out on tour. I said, oh, okay, I'll join you. You know, they'd done a few gigs. So I'd come out and I'll, uh, I joined them in Boston, I think. I flew out. And uh, I remember getting to the hotel and the road crew were at the bar. And I, oh, hello, I'm Mick Gallagher. But we're sitting having a drink. And then one by one, the clash came with their girlfriends. They were all travelling with their girlfriends. And uh, Joe would come in and he'd go and sit in that corner. Then Mick would come in and sit in that corner, <laughs> the four corners. I'm going, what? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle with the road crew going, what's going on? Don't ask, don't ask, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that was an incident that, that just uh, clocked. It wasn't until years later I realised one of the big reasons for asking me on the road was, again, as a distraction. So I was there, I was the catalyst for the four of them, in a way. To communicate because they weren't communicating with themselves. Well, I suppose subconsciously that must be part of the reason why you turned down the chance of being in the band. There was that, yeah, yeah. When it when it came down to you know we were um, I think we we're in Los Angeles and uh, Peter Jenner from Black Hill Management came over and said, "Well, this is it. This is the end of the tour, and you know Ian's going back in the studio. Um, you know he'd like you to come." back and do this this album and it felt more comfortable to, to do that you know on a personal level although i love the clash the you know um the um the the relationships i had a good relationship with the band it's just i didn't see my I, myself as a position it was it was a four piece it wasn't a five piece but then i didn't realize that the the album that ian was going to do was just going to be as far as he's concerned a throwaway you know um, he, I think he just, he needed that. He, he felt that he'd be, become the goose that laid the golden egg for a lot of people around him, his management company, the band even, you know. Um, and he resented that to some extent. And he was being pushed to make, write another hit, maybe. The crass way that the business worked. And he had some resentment about that. And of course, uh, he, he realised he was doing the last album in his contract, the third album, he just wanted to get it out of the way. Because, of course, we had uh, the blockers themselves. We had been working as a unit, uh, not uh, publicly, but we were in the studio and we were recording. 
uh, our own songs, writing our own songs, room sessions around at my house. I lived in Shepherd's Bush at the time. So we had all these little pieces of music that we were developing in songs. And we hired the studio in Fulham called Milner Sound, uh, which was only used for adverts, I think, not, not so much music. So we got it quite cheaply. Ian got wind of it <laughs> and paid us a visit. Went, oh, this is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and of course, just threw money at them and said, I'm going to do my next album here, which stopped all our sessions, you know. And we went, oh, okay, you know, we've got to do this album. And the thought of trying to, Ian at the time, it was, he was difficult at the time. It wasn't easy to work with at the time for one reason or another. And the thought of the uphill struggle of one by one going and writing stuff. So we were looking for shortcuts and we had a load of music and he was hitting us with a load of lyrics. So we paired them up, you know, so well, that works. That's the same, you know, should. so we, we made them work. Not all the songs, but enough to get maybe five of the, of the songs. And he was OK with that because he wasn't OK with that before. Yeah, we didn't tell him. He thought that we were all just, <laughs> oh, that's great if that's been happening. Oh, that's great, you know. <laughs> we obviously didn't say, we. oh, we, we can use one of our songs. We just said, oh, how about this scene? You know. He did pull some of them apart, you know, put his little bit on them. Um, a pardon, I remember. There was a completely different bass line on that. And he, he pulled it apart and restructured the bass line. Not himself, but, you know, just worried at it, worried at it until he got something that he felt worked better with his lyric. Um, it wasn't just for spite, do you know what I mean? It was always for a reason. Um, but the, mo the album does have some moments. Oh, you know, no my, doubt, no my, doubt. My, my favourite song on the album is Hey, Hey, Take Me Away, which <laughs> I think is a brilliant song, which you co-wrote. And in, in some ways, I think it, it's more powerful than Spasticus because it's such a personal lyric what, what can you tell me about that song well all the lyrics on that album were about his institutional life you know he had polio and uh, he, a lot of his younger life was was in these in institutions which weren't very pleasant and uh, he had a lot of um, memories and a lot of things he had he wanted to say about it and of course they're not easy things to talk about but put them into a song give it a jaunty <laughs> you know, gate, and sometimes it's easier to take because a lot of people w wouldn't initially listen to the lyric, they just listen to the song, catch a few words, but then when you get into the lyric and you realize, whoa, whoa, you know, this is about somebody who's losing it. <laughs> um, and he was associated with all those people, so it was coming from a, a genuine place, he wasn't, um, he wasn't just making it up. In a way, it was, it was a very heavy period because um, he was just exercising all the stuff out of his uh, system, I suppose, and delivering his third album, going, there you go, make a hit out of that. <laughs> After laughter, Ian's next venture was to recall the LP Lord Upminster with Chaz Jankel in the Bahamas, a record best known for its anthem for the disabled, Spasticus Autisticus. The Blockheads would occasionally perform at one-off concerts, but they didn't record with Ian again until the late 90s. Another Ian Jury album, 4,000 Weeks Holiday, followed in 1984, with young musicians he brought together 
under the name The Music Students. It was probably the weakest record of his career. Despite the Blockhead's demise, Mickey continued to write with Ian throughout the 80s and the pair enjoyed a fruitful partnership writing and producing musical theatre. So after this time, there's no other word for it but to say that you had dropped the Blockhead. Yeah, we were um, redundant. You, you, yeah, and you, but you carried on working with Ian for quite a few years on theatre projects. That must have been a very different process. Oh, it was, and it was a very enjoyable process because suddenly we were away from that rock and roll thing uh, and all the egotistical stuff that goes on around that and the shenanigans you had to put up with to make it work. Suddenly I was in a whole different area where the, where the discipline was, um, I found really um, inspiring, you know, working with actors. I mean, they really do work, you know. Uh, I remember one incident we uh, we had been rehearsing, writing the tunes. This is long after the process. Right, we had the tunes, and uh, we demoed them rudimentary in Ian's flat, and then we presented them to the to the actors and the, the principals who were doing the part. And then at some point, we all got together in um, in a studio in West London, and. We got together there with the band that we'd chosen for the, it wasn't the blockheads, we'd just chosen some musicians. Um and the actors and the choreographer and the director, all in the one studio. So we all get and we go through the first song. Boom, deliver the first song. And then of course the the choreographer and the director and various boards all get together in a huddle. All the actors are standing around just waiting. And the, music, the, the drummer starts chewing up his snare drum. <laughs> Whoa, you know, obviously annoyed. And the drummer's completely oblivious. And goes, chewing up the snare drum. Bass player's <laughs> gone off to make a phone call, you know. <laughs> Guitar's gone to get a sandwich. Because you know, nothing's happening. They just it. So then, then the director turns around, could, could we have that again? And of course, there's no band. Everybody's just disappeared. You waited too long, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you know, that acting was so regimented and, you know, the, 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 um, <clears throat> the director is the king, he's the emperor, you know what I mean? What he says goes. Max Stafford Clark, he had this thing where if people were making it and he wanted to speak, he'd drop a book on the floor really hard, you know, <laughs> like school. <laughs> what was it like to write songs for theatre? I'd written it, um, not particularly sight reader myself everything's done by ear <laughs> and uh, I had done things like a violin part on an emulator on a synthesizer you know done that sort of thing and uh, you work the, the whole six weeks with just me playing the piano or, or have a tape of the recording for them to rehearse with and then the week of the production you get with the orchestra the, the band the, the orchestra and they have, somebody's taken what I've done and scored it out, the bass line, the guitar, the, everything, scored it out, give it to the band, you know, and they go, right, one, two, three, four, poof! <laughs> it's like perfect. You go, wow, did I write that? That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, because when you hear it, you know, you've been hearing it for weeks, just plodding in your head, and suddenly it's all delivered to you, you know, by a sort of 10-piece orchestra it's fantastic um 
So all that was wonderful experience. I did a few few productions with Ian up there, and we did the Royal Court too. We did some stuff with Royal Court. One of the theatre projects Mickey and Ian worked on was Apples, which included a number of relatively unknown songs Ian had written years before, like the missed classic England's Glory. An album of the tracks was released in 1989. In 1992, the pair worked on the album Bus Driver's Prayer. Four years later came Ian's devastating cancer diagnosis and the decision to reform the Blockheads to record the album Mr Love Pants, regarded by many as the sister album to New Boots and Panties. So if, if I'm going to go into the, into the 90s now. Uh, after, so after you've been working, doing uh, theatrical projects with, with Ian, this Bus Driver's Prayer, which you say is the album you grieved Ian's death to. Could you explain that? Uh, yes, because it was a lot of Ian in there. He programmed the drums for that. That was That's where I felt the album Lurist Down was, didn't have real drums on it. Uh, but uh, the songs I thought were wonderful on that, on, on that uh, and it was Ian being very natural. There didn't seem to be too much pressure on that album. Um, uh, the only thing I think we did wrong was not use the blockheads on it. But at the time he didn't want to, for whatever reason, he was well into his little drum programming. And we built it from that. But some great songs, Poopoo in a Prawn, and to Fly in the Ointment, some great stuff, you know. Uh, often find myself humming those little songs, little tunes, little words go through my head. Um, underestimated album, I think. So why do you think Ian was so reluctant to, to record with the Blockheads at this time? I don't know. He felt a more manageable situation. I mean, having a band on the road, a big band, that's expensive. Do you know what I mean? Or employing I suppose you band. are quite a big band. Yeah, we are seven piece. Do you know what I mean? Um, and keeping that going, it's a big onus on somebody to keep it going. And of course he couldn't. Logis you know, financially, logistically, he couldn't keep it going. I mean, not only that, there's a storage of the equipment, there's everything that goes from it. It's just massive operation. And he was scaling everything down. So um, he didn't officially employ the blockheads, you know. We weren't on Mandela Retainer. <laughs> it wasn't that brilliant, but it was, uh, it was a drip feed, you know, it was there. And how much did uh, Ian's cancer diagnosis influence the decision to, to record with you guys again? I think he always had it in mind that he was going to get back with the blockheads again. But then suddenly, you know, his diagnosis made it essential that he made that decision now. You know what I mean? Um, and it was a great leveller in a way because it was always difficult working with Ian in the studio. Part, part and part because it was his way of, of, uh, of manipulating you. But he would keep you on edge and it was always uh, very stressful for him. If you couldn't get the melody right, or you know, it just impound because he'd get into this thing where he wouldn't get it right the first time. Go for it the second time, the third time. Fourth, if he's not getting it right, then it starts to compound on itself, and you know he's never going to get it right that day. But you then say, Ian, I think you've peaked. <laughs> oh, then you're there for the rest of the night. You know what I mean? He's determined to bloody do it, right? And it never gets done. Uh, it was a strange way of working. Whereas with um, Love Pants, all that angst seemed to go. He didn't have that angst 
anymore. He was so relaxed. You can tell in the, in the recordings. He's actually singing. He's very tuneful, more so than he's been on other albums. Did the diagnosis focus his mind on writing new material? No doubt. No doubt it focused him more on actually not just dithering about writing it, but actually getting it produced, recorded, written. And how much more do you think Ian had to give? I mean, if he'd been diagnosed earlier, would there be a much bigger body of first-class work for us to listen to? There was definitely a body of work. Um, he didn't. He didn't class anything as first class or second class or everything was just you know is what it is as you say he'd had full full scrap paper with his lyrics written on all over his flat you know there'd be been a pile under his table. and one of his things was he'd go around there and he'd be working on something he'd have this lyric just sitting on the side there and waiting for you to notice it you know but and if you didn't notice it nothing would be said but if you did oh what's this you know, Oh, really? That's just a so get you in because you've he's got your interest, and he sort of oh, I was just going to throw that away, <laughs> when really it's not. So it's all these all these games used to go on, which were wonderful, really. Yeah. And where do you think he stands um, in the in the pantheon of British writers? I think there's no doubt he's a wordsmith. He was clever with words, you know. Um, he wasn't that particularly that deep. It was just about. I used to think he always wrote from his own. Like for instance, there was um, uh, "Delusions of Grandeur," another song I wrote on the thing. And when he wrote that lyric, I went, "God, this is this lyric is amazing. This is a complete own-up. This is fantastic." And he went, "It's not about me, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> it's about him at the time or just before that time." You know, where he was going to be bonkers with it all, all the attention and the, you know. Uh, and that song just reflected exactly what was going on. Delusions of grandeur. I'm a dedicated follower of my own success. <laughs> what was the reason? Because he was relatively old to become uh, famous, uh, but he said that fame scrambled him. Um, why would that have been, do you think? Well, there's all. The trappings around that, you know, the recognition, being in the street. He used to always say, you know, um, <clears throat> the difference between me and somebody like Paul McCartney is Paul McCartney can run away, and I can't because of the polio. If he's trapped, he's trapped with people. You know, he needs somebody around him to extract him from all that. Um, he didn't have that freedom, so he did feel a bit of a victim by that. Plus, uh, although, you know, you, you never sort of were aware of it when you watched him. He used to think he was a sturdy little chap and all that. But he was delicate as anything. You just touched him. He was, you know, he, he, he would have to walk, look at the camber of, the, um, of the, the, the path that he was walking on. If it was slanting off to the left, he was all right. But if it was slanting to the right, he couldn't do it because the left leg over time had got longer through the iron on it. So there was an imbalance. So we'd have to find a different route. Everything was, you know, calculated. He'd be watching before he'd go any place if he could make it. You know, stairs were always a nightmare. Um, uh, and, uh, and the fact that what was that the slightest little touch, you know, at the wrong moment, he was gone. He was over. You know, he'd fall over. He'd lose his balance. Uh, we had problems with raked stages. You know, those raked stages that they... 
because if you get excited and you start doing that, he'd be like one of those toys, you know, that you put on it, you know, and walk down down the slant. He'd just start <laughs> going, he'd just start going, he couldn't stop. So we always had to have Fred or somebody on the side of the stage waiting for a situation like that, where he'd run out and rugby tackle him before he went off the end of the stage. And of course, most times he'd be in the middle of a song, you know, so he'd be on his back, oh, sweet children. <laughs> we were all aware of that, you know, but the general public aren't because they, they don't see that side of him. So he was always wary. Fame scared him a bit. You know, he liked the attention, obviously. Everybody likes the attention. But a lot of the trappings of it were um, a bit scary for him. After various treatments, including revolutionary gene therapy in Egypt, Ian died on March the 27th, 2000, aged 57. After the chance find by Ian's widow Sophie of a list he'd written of new songs under the title Turnips from the Tip, the band were tasked with completing an album's worth of material a year later. The band then decided to carry on working together and the Blockheads have made four albums and toured regularly. Ian's former minder, Derek Hussey, was recruited initially to provide a small number of vocal leads, but he eventually grew into the role of lead singer, a role he assumes with a plum. So it's 20 years now since uh, Ian died. How did how did his death affect you personally? What a great loss uh, in terms of uh, <clears throat> a companion, a, a colleague I worked with. Uh, the thing was, we knew it was coming. It wasn't a shock, you know. We'd known for you know years. I think we got five years extra. Uh, so everybody knew. He knew. We knew the ne the inevitable. It weren't going to get any better. It was just going to degenerate and it did degenerate we knew it was coming so we, not that we'd made plans or anything it was still a bit of a shock you know and uh we were all numb for about a year afterwards and we missed playing with each other we started sort of congregating together on a thursday night at chaz's studio he had a little studio on uh, the holloway road so we used to congregate there and have jam through different things um, I think Norm was saying, it would be good to do a few gigs. And he went, well, we've got enough stuff. We've got enough, we've got enough material. We can get out and do, we can share the singing around. And both. So we just cobbled together. And I got in contact with an agent. And we said, we'd like to go out and do a few gigs. So we were rock bottom price then, you know, right back down to the bottom. I wanted to ask you about 10 more turnips from the tip. Because that must have been a, uh, quite a difficult process. Some of the songs were were in very um, uh, basic stages that you'd been working on with Ian that you had to make into a, a record. Yeah, well, that's the magic that you can do in the studio. We had Ian's voice on a lot of stuff from the demos. So we just put the demos up and we replaced what needed to be replaced with more sophisticated sound. Uh, the, the rhythms were there. The, the song structures were most, mostly there. So it's just a studio, you know, a lot, spent a lot of time in a studio, a lot of time thinking around things, how, how, how we, you know, um, exchange that sound for this sound. You put on overdub, this is overdub drums, which was, you know, the difficult part, but we managed to do it. And uh, got a lot of help from um, the family because, you know, I, when Ian died, I said, well, that's it, no more releases, do you know what I mean? And I think it was Sophie's wife who was cleaning out some things and, and she found a list. 
entitled 10 more terms from the tip was with a list of songs that she realized oh these are songs they were working on when he died so she presented the list to us and we went yeah yeah we've got copies of that song with these demos charles has got a few i've got one you know all that so she encouraged us to finish the album it was a strange album to do in as much as you know we had to make it sound like we were all together when we weren't it works though it does work it's a good album isn't it? yeah yeah but as i say you know studio technology these days you know you can do that it, it isn't too hard that album was the, the template in a way for the albums where's the party you know we continued in that in that vein where we which contributed and various singers in the band did it but we realized after where's the party it was lacking that individual characteristic thing that we had with Ian, which was that rough diamond in the front of a sophisticated music. We rehearsed a bit with um, various singers, a couple of American singers. Sam and Dave, you know, Sam Moore, he was in his 80s, but he still had the chops, and he came wow. down and we, we sang with him. Uh, he, he sang a couple of songs that we wrote, and um, but it just sounded like an American funk band, <laughs> unfortunately, you know. Uh, we needed that English rawness at the front, and then we could be as sophisticated and as funky as we wanted to be, because we had that front man who was bringing it down down to earth all the time, you know. And Derek, bless him, stepped into the role wonderfully well, you know. I mean, we pushed it on Derek, you know. Uh, basically, he, he, it was by default because when we went back on the road, by the nature of it, Derek didn't have a job because Ian wasn't there, and Ian, uh, Derek used to look after Ian driving. But we said, Derek, you come along still, you're part of the band. Shake your tambourine on the centre stage, look a bit moody, you know, be <laughs> part of the thing. And and we thought, you could do clever Trevor, it's not particularly a singing hard, just get the lyrics. So we bring them on to do those rapping ones, you know, and, and that worked. And at the time, Johnny was working with... Um, Bob Geldof a lot, and of course, Johnny was doing most of the singing, great voice he's got, uh, he was doing most of the singing in the band, we'd even given him his own two monitors at the front, and he was in the middle, right, and one gig he just said, oh I can't do the, ne um, the next couple of weeks, I'm on the road with Bob, and we all went, what, <laughs> you can't just, you know, alright Derek, you've got the two monitors now, you're on it, <laughs> so we pushed him so when Johnny came back he was at the side with normal one monitor <laughs> you know <laughs> what, what's going on you know and Derek, I mean, Derek's a great front man isn't he, he is he's grown into it he's grown into it he went into it reluctantly obviously um, big shoes to fill but we said look Derek don't even try to fill yes. Ian's shoes just be you you know you're, you're close enough you, you've got a you know uh, uh, you have an empathy with you, know, you had an empathy with, with Ian you know both London boys, and it's just from that. So you you're coming from the same place. Maybe Ian was a bit more erudite. I don't know. But Derek's got his own his own way of delivering, which is very good. I love it. And so, what is the future for the Blockheads? The future? <laughs> we don't have a future. We've been told for the last twenty years we didn't have a future. You know, but we truck on, you know, we truck on, we've got a little office here, we sell the merch from here, we do operation, or we did, 
you know, it remains to be seen what, what happens. What's the future for anybody, really, in, in the events industry? I mean, we deal with social gathering. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, it's, um, we can transfer it to, to lockdown sessions where we're all on this sort of thing on Zoom. But it's, it's a different thing. Uh, I'm just going to bring you back to wrap this up. How do you think Ian should be remembered? Oh, over a pint of Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That was Fistful of Chords. Thanks so much to Mickey for taking part. He's always good value. I'd like to thank Ben Gallagher and Adam Miller for their technical help and also Adam for allowing me to use his music. Thanks to Mark Taplin for the terrific podcast logo and to my former Reuters colleague George Sargent for his advice on recording podcasts. George hosts his own terrific podcast, What an Office, which features those who worked on the sitcom The Office. Have a listen, if nothing else, to catch some of George's infectious laugh. Thanks for listening.